Good to see you. Welcome, welcome. Um, how about we all stand, and uh, if you guys would like, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of First Peter, First Peter, chapter 3. I'm so not even ready. I still have gum in my mouth. You know, I'm not supposed to say that, but that's the way we roll sometimes. All right. So we've been in a series now in uh, the book of Peter. We are back in this great book, um, jumping into really just all that's happening. And Peter's writing to a community of followers of Jesus that are trying to make sense of following Jesus faithfully in the midst of a culture that is really, for the most part, hostile and pushing back against them. And so the challenge for them is to really maintain their fidelity or their faithfulness to Jesus, even in the midst of that type of hostility. And uh, one of the things that we've been saying all along is there's a lot of correlations between what Christians were going through first century as well as what we're trying to navigate as well in our own world. Um, we started a series just prior to Christmas, then we led us into kind of four weeks of, of uh, Advent, looking at the life of Jesus, um, and now we're kind of jumping back into in this new year, and I was sick last week, and this past week was just kind of crazy mentally, just all that stuff that goes along with that. Um, before I jump in, I would love to actually just pray for those that are sick. I feel like this past week and a half, I think every single person that I know that has been kind of watching this uh, landscape of COVID, you know, unfold over the past couple of years, I think we all are in agreement that the past two weeks, we've seen more people actually get sick within our own close proximity than in two years, um, which is crazy. My, my daughter, who lives in another state, literally got sick the same week that we did. And uh, I'm just like, how does it happen? I don't know. Crazy. And I know that a lot of you guys have been going through that as well and, and or knowing people that have gone through that as well. So I want to just pray specifically for you guys and then pray for our time together here as we jump into the word. And then uh, we'll get into just the teaching. So let's just pray right now. Uh, Father, we come and we bring before you, God, just uh, our frailty, I think is really what it just boils down to, our frailty. And God, we thank you that you are strong on our behalf, that you are a shelter for us when we find ourselves feeling vulnerable. God, that you are our strength when we feel really weak, uh, that you are the one that is our shelter. And God, we look to you right now. I pray for anybody here that is just uh, dealing with any form of sickness, knows people that are dealing with sickness. I think of uh, two people right now that just come to my mind uh, that are involved in ministry and pastors and have large families that they are not doing well right now in the midst of this. And I just pray for your healing over their body. I pray for others, God, within close proximity to our lives. Every one of us, I'm sure that we know somebody, if not ourselves, have gone through something like this over the past week, couple weeks. Uh, I just pray for your your healing over our community, over our lives. I pray, God, that you would just restore and renew strength. And uh, thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for the church that has lasted and weathered uh, 2,000 years of pestilence and plague and demagogues and political unrest, and upheaval, and challenges, and tsunamis, and earthquakes, and volcanoes, and all sorts of other forms of tragedies, Lord, that your church has overcome, not by their strength, but by the strength of Jesus. 
And so that's why we look to you right now. We just pray that you would just help our eyes and our attention to be focused upon the one who is the foundation here in this place. God, we thank you that we can come here this morning um, and realize that this is, this is actually not about us. It's about your strength, your goodness. And so we look to you right now and we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to read First uh, Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read just a handful of verses from there. And then, uh, again, we're still kind of getting into uh, back into the book of Peter uh, after having been gone out of it for a little bit. And like I said, I was sick last week as well. Um, so today is actually one, one message that will basically be over three weeks. Um, so think of it as like a Joe Rogan podcast over multiple, multiple, like, you know, times and whatnot. But um, that's kind of what this is. So uh, the subject matter. I'm going to be tackling today, I would not necessarily just uh, isolate and cover it in a standalone message, but it's all part of one big thing. Hopefully it'll all make sense. I want to read verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been looking at the subject focus on verse 10. We've been describing as the good life. We've been asking the question as to what does it mean to actually live the good life? What is the good life? How does one engage with that? And I'll make some summary comments on that in just a moment. But let's read uh, the scripture, the word of God right now, and just pay attention to what God has to speak to us through this inspired text. Uh, verse 8, chapter 3, First Peter says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless those. For this is what you are called to. That you may obtain a blessing, verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And I'll finish up in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. For the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is the word of the Lord. Which I'll grab a seat. So I want to kind of set this up again. Like I said, this is all part of one big message, kind of broken up over three weeks, looking at really this uh, subject that we get from verse 10 of the good life. Again, he puts it in these words, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. So again, if I were to put this into a question and ask, how many of you want to love your life? How many want to see good days? I think all of us would unanimously be in agreement and say, yes, that's what I want. That's what I long for. Uh, again, if I were to kind of put this in the inversion of how many of you want horrible life and to hate your life and to hate other human beings and to live in a state of constant meltdown and breakdown and anxiety, none of us would sign up for that. But for some of us, that's kind of been our experience. And so we're moving from a state of brokenness or chaos into a state of, of order. Um, and this is what I think Peter's writing to this community of Christians that are trying to be faithful to Jesus. And he's saying, hey, at the end of the day, this is what we aim for, what we long for. And he is actually tackling a, an Old Testament passage. And again, we'll get to that over the next couple of weeks. But uh, Peter writes with this deep, deep, rich uh, tethering or anchoring to the ancient historic scripture and the narrative of the Bible. And he's drawing from that illusion by describing, like, this is God's aim. Do you know that God's aim, God's desire, is to actually bless us with good lives? This is not the idea of, like, a, like a distorted prosperity gospel or doctrine. But God actually desires your good. He actually desires your good. And now, again, to get there sometimes involves a windy road. 
a process, challenges, hardships. And, um, and this is where I want to kind of look at specifically the topic that we're going to be focusing on today is one of the things, next slide, I'll kind of give a little bit of a summary that the good life, which is in verse 10, is ultimately built upon the foundation of Jesus. We actually saw this a couple of weeks ago, if you guys were here. Um, yet there are occasions when disappointments and or difficulties cause one to question the reality of their faith. And so there are occasions where things don't line up right. Or to put it into the context of what Peter's writing, um, that even though he describes the experience of the believer uh, should be one where he describes again in verse 8, where we experience a tender heart or a humble mind, uh, not repaying evil for evil, uh, but on the contrary, we bring blessing to those. Instead, all we want to do is curse those because we've been deeply wounded or hurt. So we want to engage uh, like like tit for tat, anger for anger, frustration for frustration. You hurt me, I hurt you. And we, we, we broker with that type of a posture. And so uh, what ends up happening is we find ourselves in continual states of, of chaos. So in other words, there are occasions when the follower of Jesus um, does not necessarily appropriate that experience of tender heartedness or peace or joy they're left with something else that looks more like disappointment or hurt or trauma or in some horrible cases abuse and they're left to try to navigate that and try to figure that out and that has led to i would say just experiences uh that are common in our world today where one word that kind of comes to my mind which is what i want to talk a little bit about here today is just the subject of deconstruction and the, the idea of like deconstructing, pulling apart, untethering your faith and trying to make sense of it. A lot of times what I would like to do this morning is uh, try to put this in the bigger context of, of the good life. Uh, the way I would describe it is this way, that in order to really truly engage with the life that God intends for us, a.k.a. the good life, there are occasions where we have to take good, strong, hard looks at the faith that we have and ask, does it reflect the historic biblical faith? Or is it something that we've kind of crafted and created on our own? Or we've inherited from, you know, great-great-grandma or some youth pastor that maybe had gone south or sideways at some point? Or some form of uh, strained understanding of what the Christian faith is? And so therefore, at some point, when, when that fails us, we're oftentimes left with this question of like, what is real? Now, that can be really scary for a lot of people because it means kind of an, uh, what can span a, I don't know, a degree of either undermining the faith that you've been given all the way to the point of questioning, all the way to the point of maybe even walking away from it. And that can be terrifying for a lot of people who have undergone or gone through this type of thing. Now, the idea of deconstruction is become something that I would say that probably most of you, if I were to ask you, how many of you have heard or are familiar with the idea of deconstruction, or do you know someone who's gone through deconstruction, or have you yourself encountered that as well? I think probably many, many people, that not most of y'all, have had some various form of understanding of what deconstruction of faith is. Now, again, I think the language of deconstruction has become more popularized over the past 10 years, but maybe back in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, it was probably more like doubting one's faith, questioning one's faith. It was kind of more popularized or known as simply that. Now it's become tagged and described as simply deconstruction. So what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about the subject of deconstruction. 
and what that means, what that entails, and uh, hopefully land on the the beginning state of a of a next part, which we will get into not this week but next week. Um, so this is kind of a, a, a two week on this particular subject matter. Uh, so today the title is the Good Life and Deconstruction of Faith. If you want to think of it in that context, um, what I want to describe is this: is the idea of spiritual progress. Spiritual progress is oftentimes made up in these various stages where we go through moments where we question. Um, we don't. It doesn't have to be the worst thing in your entire life. It doesn't have to be the dismantling of your faith. Um, but the process, the practice, I would even put it that way, of questioning your faith, what you've inherited, does it line up with Scripture? Is it anchored in the historical Christian faith? Or is it just something that maybe you have assumed upon yourself based upon someone else that, that has, has it's given you some traction over a period of time, but it's led you so far and to the point where it comes to a spot where it just is, is no longer able to support you anymore. And, and that's where a lot of people find themselves. It's in that moment of like, oh my gosh, what I feel like I inherited is no longer sustainable for my faith and my understanding of who God is. And now you're kind of left with this crisis moment of, do I walk away from Jesus? Do I walk away from the Bible? Do I walk away from all that I've known? And that can be an absolutely frightening and terrifying place. So that's, that's what I want to try to address today because I think part of the pathway of the good life involves this, this practice of doing it rightly. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. So I I want to take a look at a handful of things and I'll just kind of cast them for you and then we will one by one look at them. So number one, I want to look at the the question specifically of of what is deconstruction. I'll give you a little bit of a definition. I have a couple of resources I'll I'll direct you to if you are more interested in digging deeper into this. Um, I want to take a look at the question of like, why has there been seemingly apparently a rise of deconstruction stories? And then uh, thirdly, I want to really kind of ask, what are some reasons why people go through this process of deconstruction? And I want to end on just really this question of like, um, why deconstruction does not have to be frightening. It doesn't have to be the end of your world as you know it. In fact, if anything, it could maybe even be the beginning of a brand new world or a deeper experience of delving deeper into your understanding and your relationship with with Jesus. So with that being said, hopefully that's got a lot of work to tackle and hopefully this all makes sense to you. And again, if you guys, uh, like always, I'll make reference to this. If there's too much information coming out right now, um, you can always go back and listen to our podcast as well. So number one, what is deconstruction? What is deconstruction? Well, just think of the word itself, deconstruction. It has the word construction in it, and it has the word D in it. So think of something that's construction-oriented, building something. Deconstruction is dismantling or this, this dismantling of whatever form of structure that's there. Um, there is a philosophical background, backstory to this. That comes from what's called post-structuralism, uh, which is sort of a philosophical movement, which has called to question all forms of structures. We've seen some elements of this um, at play consistently throughout our culture. For example, um, the Harvey Weinstein uh, situation, which is sort of a deconstruction of the entire system of, of Hollywood and the Me Too movement and calling to question the structures that were there in place that were actually oppressive and destructive and, and abusive to, uh, to, to women in that particular context. Uh, we've seen that even happen or call to question even with regard to politics and governments. Uh, we've seen that within the church. We've th- seen that within uh, the larger organizational type structures of the church uh, where there have been abuses. And, and that, 
I think most of us would all agree that that's not necessarily bad. It's actually good to call to question things that are abusive and destructive. That's this part of, again, if you're a Christian, we care about justice. We should care about justice. We should care about things that are actually adding. I've, I've, I've been involved in church organizations where there have been consistent situations where women have been marginalized or abused and and the pastor the pastors have been consistently given places of recognition simply because they're really gifted it's kind of a celebrity status that to me to put it into a word is wicked it's evil not wicked in the good sense like wicked that's wicked no it's actually wicked like evil like jesus hates it when christians when churches when organizations take a pastor who's been abusive to his people or destructive, or created a toxic environment, consistently creating a system of brokenness and abuse, and yet he continues to have that position of, of authority in the life, simply because he sells his messages, or he's done a good job, or he's brought a lot of money into the church, or prominence or recognition. That's wicked. I think Jesus hates that. Those types of organizations ought to be dismantled, deconstructed. So again, I think we would all recognize that there are occasions where this needs to happen. So here's the definition I would give. is the process of reevaluating one's core beliefs. Uh, and I put into parentheses here the idea, and I won't talk much about this today. At some point I will. The idea of mental maps or structures, mental maps. So think of a mental map as something that that was given to you. Uh, think of, uh, you know, for example, let's say you had a great grandma that loved Jesus. She was deeply, deeply committed to Jesus, and she would consistently pray a prayer over you. And, you know, let's say Psalm 23 or whatever. So you grew up with that somewhere echoing in the back of your head. Like that, you inherited something really awesome from from grandma. That's been a part of your mental map. Now, there are people, obviously, in this world that didn't have grandma, that didn't pray Psalm 23 over them. They that's not part of their mental map. So our mental maps are important. Again, I'm not going to talk too much about this other than the fact that, identify the fact that this is the process of reevaluating one's core beliefs about God, self, and the world. Now, I want to make a distinguishing mark remark about three different things. And this is really important because I think it's it, there's a potentiality of conflating these three things all as one in the same thing. So I want to try to bring some nuance to this. So deconversion is distinct from what I would describe as unhealthy deconstruction, which is distinct from what I would describe as healthy deconstruction. So deconversion. Deconversion is basically what we've seen a lot over the past five years. If you are and have been reading any of the uh, the popular material, whether it be with you know within America, about Christianity and how people's relation to the church has been. And we've seen a consistent rise of a description of people that are described as nuns or duns. Maybe you've heard of them. Nun meaning N-O-N-E or dun meaning D-O-N-E, meaning they have, they're no longer affiliating or associating with church. They're done or they are, they're none. They're, they're non-affiliators of any form of church. And we've seen a rise of that. I've been pastoring here for almost 30 years, and I've, I've watched this consistently happen. And this is part of what, what most sociologists would simply describe as the secularization of society. And I don't want to necessarily put that into a negative term, although it can take negative connotation. What I mean by that is the secularization is the moving away from seeing God as, a, as an important influence in society at large. Now, again, if you were to look at like 1950. 
19, you know, early 60s, maybe late 1950s, you would say that, that God was a pretty high level influence. In other words, if I was a pastor back in like 1950 and I walked into a coffee shop and someone would be like, hey, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I'm a pastor. They'd be like, no way, pastor. Can you talk to me about God? And, you know, there would be kind of an honor associated with that. If I walk into a coffee shop now and they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, that sucks. That's, that's, that sucks that you're part of the oppressive, you know, patriarchy that's destroying people's lives. That's a bummer. Like, like th- th- that is what I mean by secularization. There has been a move away from God or a recognition of an influence of God within our culture at large. Now, again, that I'm talking California. And if you, my, my daughter lives in North Carolina, things are a little bit different in North Carolina than they are here in California. But the point, you get, you get the idea. So I want to, what I want to think about is the idea of deconversion. Deconversion is, is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's deconverting. Um, you might describe this as walking away from the faith or uh, the concept of apostasy or turning away from God. Um, and I would put it this way. All deconversion involves de- deconstruction. All deconversion involves a process of deconstruction. However, not all deconstruction leads to deconversion. You need to know this. So some of you might be like, what are you talking about right now? Just think about this. Deconversion, the idea of walking away from one's faith, at some point involves a process of saying, I need to dismantle the structures that I've inherited or I've been a part of or in thinking about Jesus, the church, Christianity, yada, yada, yada. And in that process of deconverting is a process of deconstruction. Not all deconstruction of our mental maps or what we have inherited in terms of our understanding of God will always have to lead to deconversion. So that's where I want to nuance this. Hopefully I'm not losing you guys out. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about briefly this idea of unhealthy deconstruction. So what I mean by unhealthy deconstruction is oftentimes just think of the word destruction, destruction. Think of it somebody who's you know got legos and they just go in and they just destroy or dismantle everything they deconstruct this entire city of legos um i'll put it this way there there is there is an unhealthy form of deconstruction that can oftentimes lead to someone being isolated angry cynical and i would suggest that at the end of the day deconstruction should never ever be the end game it should always be just a part towards the end game, the end game being a reconstruction of something fresh and new. Maybe not necessarily that you're the innovator of, but the idea that you are inheriting, renewing, renewal, the idea of that. Um, so there are unhealthy forms of deconstruction that lead to greater cynicism. And I would suggest that if, if that is you or if you've been on that pathway, I believe there's, there's help and healing. And I would just deeply, deeply caution you, be careful to let your heart go down to a path of cynicism. Cynicism will ultimately infect every aspect of your life. It will cause you to become deeply cynical of every relationship you've ever had, of every leader that you've ever been uh, introduced to or connected to. It's the type of idea that causes you really at the end of the day to be the final arbitrator of all truth in reality and experience. You become that. And the problem with that is we make very poor uh, judges of character and of everything universally. We need each other. In order to engage with each other, we cannot walk in a path of cynicism. 
Now, with that being said, I want to talk a little bit real briefly about healthy deconstruction. And again, I'll get more into this uh, over the next week and towards the end of this message as well. But the idea of healthy deconstruction, this is what I would simply describe as recognizing that there are things that sometimes that you have known about God that you need to grow up. That's part of just growing up. And some of the ideas and thoughts and concepts that maybe you had about God or had in terms of your understanding of who God is um, are no longer capable of supporting you. So as you grow, as you develop, as you begin to expand, as you continue to read Scripture, as you continue to uh, submit our hearts to the authority of Jesus and the Lordship of Christ and the teachings that have been uh, part of the historic Christian landscape, as that begins to happen, our world should continue to grow. It would be what I would describe uh, throughout the Christian historical landscape is what's called oftentimes commonly known as the dark night of the soul. It's a season where things get stripped back. Things kind of begin to be pulled away. The rug feels like it's been torn out from underneath you. You are trying to make sense of reality about the world around you, trying to understand who God is, who you are in context of this God, who your neighbors are, and how you're supposed to love them, and how you're supposed to figure out. All of that is part of what I would describe as the dark night of the soul, or as what someone would want to describe as the concept of deconstruction, which, by the way, I don't really like that that language of deconstruction just because I think it's become again I'm Gen Xer I like I in, by nature I am rebellious okay just, I'm telling you and so I when when words become overly popularized I'm like ah, I hate that word now so what's the different word but uh, that's what we have right now and I realize that this is kind of the language that most of us might be familiar with so again I want to just reiterate. Deconstruction is the process of reevaluating one's core beliefs about God's self and the world. So I want to ask the question, why the rise of deconstruction stories over the past five to ten years? Which I would suggest that over the past five to ten years, this has become even far more mainstream. In fact, if you were to do a Google search right now, type in you know deconstruction of the faith and just do a search on that, um, all forms of news feeds would come up. In fact, you'd find deconstruction life coaches, people that will help you on this journey, kind of deconstruct. There's podcasts all over the place on deconstruction. This is really, really wide mainstream. It's one of the reasons why I want to address this and talk about it. I think there's at least three reasons why this has become so part of our landscape today. Number one is the ubiquity of media and social media and access to information. So in other words, a scandal that happens in a church, you know, I don't know, in Florida or something like that, automatically just becomes mainstream. Or something that happens, you know, with Carl Lentz, say, for example, Hillsong in New York City, that becomes headline news. So you literally have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people worldwide that are like, oh my gosh, how could this happen? Because what, what's happened now, social media, with the ubiquity of that, that has just taken all of these news uh, articles uh, of someone's deconstruction story. So, for example, Joshua Harris, if you guys have been growing up in that particular era where you kissed dating goodbye, and it was kind of part of your landscape, and you watched Joshua Harris go through his deconstruction story, and when he became kind of a deconstruction life coach, when he wrote, actually, the syllabus on how to deconstruct your faith, so on and so forth, all of these things became very wide-streamed, very well-known, very quickly over just a matter of, of, of you know, days, if, if not weeks. 
And at the end of the day, I think also uh, because of the ubiquity of social media, um, partnered with uh, what I would just describe kind of narcissistic behavior, people love to be seen in their story of whatever it is, whether it be deconstructing their faith or deconverting or whatever it is. They want the world to see that. There's a there's an itch that oftentimes desires for that type of affirmation and whatnot. And again, I'm not gonna I don't want to judge anybody's motives, but the point is that 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 definitely plays into a part of it as well. How much I don't know but I don't want to uh, presuppose any of that. So number one, we see the rise of media, social media, and access to all sorts of information. Number two is the idea of scandalous and or negative news oftentimes gets far more clicked. It gets far more recognized. So in other words, if you were to like, you know, go online and realize like the, the news media articles that, that get viral are the ones that are usually negative, right? I mean, for every deconstruction story or deconversion story, there are also conversion stories, believe it or not. There are people that are coming to faith and meeting Jesus for every deconstruction story of someone like walking away or dismantling their faith or being very public about that. There are also those that have gone through deconstruction stories where maybe they've been a part of a very, very strong uh, right-leaning uh, fundamentalist type of church that's been very stiff and very rigid, and they have maybe had to break out of that, and they found life in Jesus and a whole other uh, historic Christian faith, like an Orthodox church, say, for example. They discovered the power of Jesus in an entirely different context. But you don't hear those stories because they're not as clickbaity. The third thing, I think, is because for the most part, within our culture, um, our culture treats uh, things like doubt and suspicion as like a virtue. Um, again, like I said, throw into that mixture a little bit of like my Gen Xiness, and it's like like you have this combo of just rebels at heart. Add to that, I'm an eight on the anagram. So the point of the matter is, is that this is kind of how we are as human beings. We just, we have this tendency where we just want to, um, uh, to, to push back, to be contrary to any general narrative that's out there. So again, that's kind of viewed as sort of like a, as a virtue. So being suspicious of all forms of institutions, whether it be religious, political, medical, whatever, that's, that's, that sells as part of the general landscape. Um, I think there has also been a highly uh, pervasive influence from what's commonly known as the philosophers of suspicion. This would be people like Marx or Freud or Nietzsche or Foucault or uh, Jacques Derrida. But the idea is that these are types of uh, philosophical mindsets that once were just sort of relegated in, you know, in the in the cafes of of France. Now they are kind of mainstream. They've literally influenced the general population of people that we have become deeply, deeply suspicious. The problem with that is there's good sides to that as well, like I had mentioned, which we'll, we'll look into. But the, the dark side of that as well, we become cynical. And what happens when we become cynical, we see the world through this cynical lens, all of the enchantment that was once there is gone. Our world's become flattened. It's one of the reasons why nihilism, the idea of just despair, death, is at all-time high. Alcohol abuse, drug abuse, sexual addictions, screen addictions, all of these literally are part of that landscape as a way of re-enchanting your soul so that it feels something. It's cynicism. Cynicism leads to all of this. It's part of that unhealthy pathway of deconstruction. Many go through some form 
of aspect of deconstruction or a dark night. And yet the fact is many, many, many come out the other end with a deeper, more robust confidence in Jesus than they've ever had before. We don't always hear those stories. We don't always focus on those stories. But I think we need to consider it. And what I would love to do just in our time of thinking about this is as best as I can to, if anything, just to normalize this practice. To say it's part of the normal Christian life, number one. Number two, um, I, I don't like to think of myself in this way, but if, if I could be a tour guide on this pathway of recognizing there have been occasions throughout my life I've had to take a long, hard look at the doctrines, some of the teachings, some of the aspects of the Christian faith that I've received from my historic Christian background and look at it and say, I'm not sure if this this is sustainable for my faith and my future and my mental capacity. Maybe I need to rethink this in light of the teachings and the words of Jesus. That's been part of the dismantling or deconstructing of my own understanding of who God is and what the scriptures teach on the life of the follower of Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to wrap it up with a couple of quick things. Number one, uh, the third thing is I want to look at reasons why people deconstruct. Go through these real quickly. We'll see how far I get. Reasons why people deconstruct. Um, if you want to dig deeper into this, uh, there's a guy named uh, Jeffrey Halsclaw. You can check him out. Um, uh, he's had he's had some like really good information. That I think that has that might be uh, uh, helpful for a lot of you. He's actually a pastor. He's a theology uh, theology professor. Uh, pastors of Vineyard Church, I think somewhere maybe in, I don't know in Ohio or something. Like that. I'm not sure exactly where he's at, but he's done a lot of research on this. And these are five things that he points out that he's observed. And I would actually concur, uh, again, being a pastor for 30 years and realizing that there's a lot of different reasons why people go through these dark nights of their soul or deconstructing, however language you would like to use for it. Number one is the idea of intellectual, he points out the five Ds. Number one, intellectual dissonance. This is oftentimes where people, uh, they, you know, and this happens a lot, I think, within our city. Uh, people go to Cal Poly. They may be groomed or raised up in a Christian church, and they homeschool their entire life, and then they come to Cal Poly, and they have that antagonistic professor that's just like, Jesus is an idiot. And you're just like, well, I'm not really sure. Like, whoa, that's what, and you are faced now with intellectual challenges of like, whoa, maybe they're right. And I think part of the process is learning how to deconstruct your deconstruction. Part of it is even learning to doubt your doubts. So we look for an authority figure, someone that's going to tell us, hey, here's the real deal, here's the fact, here's the truth, follow this. And oftentimes, because we, we want to be, we want to follow somebody, we, we take people's words at face value without really doing thorough testing of it. And sometimes it's easy for us to be easily manipulated. So uh, intellectual dissonance is one. Number two is biblical disconnect. And this is, you know, where someone maybe, again, uh, had uh, certain understandings of the scripture um, and they grow and they begin to realize, like, well, may, w- wait a minute. W- was Jonah really swallowed by a, a literal whale? Because my teacher says you can't be. Like, and now you have this, like, this, like moment. Again, I'm, I'm kind of given, like, the, the low-hanging fruit that oftentimes is right there. Um, and, and the point that I would make is that, that these are things that sometimes can cause people to, like, find these uh, places where they, they question their faith. Is it even real? Is Jesus even king? What about this? What about what my pastor said? What about grandma? What about all of, you know, the Psalm 23? Are all, what's going on? And um, 
biblical disconnect. And then thirdly, political or moral disillusionment. And again, I think we've seen this without question over the past four to six years, more so than ever before, this radical polarization within Christian context. Even some pastors taking really strong approaches on certain political parties and almost preaching that as if it's on par with the message of Jesus. I can't even tell you how many people I have over the past four years have just tried to walk through their own deconversion moments of just like trying, or even deconstruction, just trying to make sense. How do I make sense of the message of Jesus when this pastor over here seems to be conflating the message of Jesus with what this political, non-Christian person has been stating? And again, it's deep, if anything, it's deeply confusing. I get it. I am not apolitical. Don't misunderstand that. That's fine. Have political convictions. Have political uh, values. It's totally fine. But, especially for me as a pastor, and I'm saying this to myself, if I get up here and I begin to somehow conflate the message of Jesus with whatever form of political affiliation, then I've erred and I've brought confusion because I somehow conflated the message, the gospel of Jesus with some form of uh, a politicalness, political correctness, if you would, uh, that at some point it's just going to be nothing more than a footnote in political history. But Jesus won't be. Jesus will be forever king. And so this oftentimes leads to people deconstructing. Third, uh, fourthly, uh, is emotional distress. People sometimes go through deep unsettling moments in their life and they're left trying to question like how do i deal with this and i've been around uh churches before where again for example there is there was a there's a long stretch of time in my own christian tribe that i grew up in that i was saved in that i met jesus in that basically had a very very negative viewpoint on any form of, of therapy or uh just even counseling psychological counseling and basically poo-pooed that and was just like, no, you can't do that. That's bad. Just read the Bible and you'll be fine. And unfortunately, that has actually caused a lot of people's faith to just be destroyed. Because maybe they went through a really deeply traumatic experience at home or the parents divorced or they went through a divorce or they had a death in their family or they went through some sort of deep pain. When they go to their pastor, the pastor just minimizes it. That's like a double trauma. And it causes people sometimes to be like, well, if the church is not safe for me, I don't know where else to go. And I want to say to you, if you're a Christian, or if you've been brought up in the church, and it has been your experience ever, if it's ever been the experience here, if it's ever been an experience of any other congregation where you have felt sort of a double trauma, where you have not been valued in the grief or the pain and the hearts that maybe you've gone through, I'm so sorry. That's not the heart of Jesus. Jesus cares about our griefs and our pain and our trauma. Uh, fifthly is theological diversity. And you, you can think of this in maybe, I've talked with so many people that have come from maybe a very, very hardcore, rigid fundamentalism. And that has just seen things in a very, very black and white spectrum. That's it. There's all the, the binary, like it's either this or you're going to hell forever. And that's it. Like you have no other options on the table. And it's like, so wait a minute, if, if I if I'm not, if I'm questioning whether or not there actually is a seven-year tribulation and I'm going to go to hell, yes. You, if, if, I don't, if I don't read from the King James Version Bible, I'll go to hell. Yes. It's like, whoa, that's, that's a bummer. Like, did Paul read from the King James Version? Yes. Okay, that's cool, I guess. But here's the point. So the, the, a rigid fundamentalism oftentimes leads people to just be like, whoa, is, is this what 
Jesus is all about? And again, there's a conflation sometimes of Jesus with a rigid fundamentalism. And to walk away from this rigid fundamentalism equals walking away from Jesus. Or at least that is the myth that's in someone's mind. And I want to suggest to you, it doesn't have to be that. Do you realize, guys, Christianity did not begin in 1968 in America? I don't mean to be tried, but Christianity has been on this planet for 2,000 years. And it's in every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language. It may not be American evangelicalism. And, and if you don't know the distinction between American evangelicalism or, say, Eastern Orthodoxy or other forms of even evangelicalism throughout Europe or the world, then, then maybe the horizons of your world need to be expanded in understanding the fact the breadth of the beauty of the body of Christ far expands beyond maybe the, the tribe or the version of Christianity that you have been a part of. But what I would hope to at least paint a picture for you to see is Jesus is deeply, deeply compelling, beautiful, and good. Maybe your experience in some of these contexts has not been compelling and good. Maybe it's been abusive. Maybe it's been deeply painful. Maybe it's been double traumatizing for you in some cases. Maybe it's been confusing in some ways. But my hope would be to bring us into a place, and here's where I'm going to finish. I want to be done with this. Is I want to just really address uh, real quickly why healthy deconstruction does not have to ultimately be frightening. And there's two reasons, and I just want to end with this. In fact, I'm going to have... Dan, come on up, and we're going to just transition now into some singing in response. So as the team comes on up um, and gets ready, um, I just want to finish with some final thoughts on this. Um, why healthy deconstruction? This is, uh, I'm, I'm ending on where I'm going to begin next week. So if, uh, you know, again, this is a, a one sermon over a period of time. So um, what I want to do is I want to just think about why deconstruction does not need to be frightening. And for some, uh, that might feel like the end of your world. And, and you might feel deeply scared because everything that you've known, everything that you've thought you've inherited or you've uh, processed, at some point you are, you're looking at it, it's like, I don't know if this can sustain me and my confidence in God and something's got to give. Maybe I need to deconstruct. Maybe I need to walk away from Jesus. And I would like to encourage you, don't walk away from Jesus. There's two reasons why I think, number one, is that the historic Christian experience, number one, and what I mean by this is that all throughout the historic Christian experience, since its very founding, we stand in this company of innumerable multitude who have faced these same challenges for 2,000 years. Christians, throughout 2,000 years of history, they have faced oppressive church systems. Martin Luther, how is he going to go about this? Is he going to walk away from Jesus? Is he going to like leave? What about John Huss? Burn at the stake. Killed. What about some of the early Christians in the early 300s that literally gave their life for Jesus? Um, they were betrayed. Uh, what I want to encourage you is that we stand in this innumerable host of human beings that have been faithful to Jesus, but even more importantly, they've known that Jesus has been faithful to them, and they've weathered these storms 
Uh, a lot of us, we don't know about these things because, again, for the most part, Western Christianity has done an exceptionally good job at detethering ourselves from our past historical lineage. We don't know about the saints. We love celebrities more than we love saints. And I, I, I think maybe it's time for us as a church to just to repent from that. And to turn away from maybe some of the historical fluent, uh, historical uh, uh, failed fluency that we've, we should be having. But we don't know the stories of the saints throughout history. We don't know these stories because they're just not part of our world. They're not part of our, our aggregate. They're not part of our, our news feed on social media. They don't come into the 160 characters on our Twitter feed. We're, we're, we're not talking about these things. We're not aware of these things. And I want to encourage you, be aware of these things. And then lastly, the stories of the Bible are filled, literally filled from the beginning sequence of the Bible of saints that have wrestled with God, that have gone through dark nights. They've faced trauma. They've had their questions. They have dealt with being abandoned. They've dealt with being shut off, shut out, in some cases even murdered and killed. They've dealt with their own questions. Again, you can think of Abraham. We'll look at some of these stories next week more in depth. But these stories, guys, listen. These are your stories. This is your inheritance. If you want to put it this way, these are your people. You belong to this company of people that have gone through this process of the dark night of the soul, of having to face questions, deep questions. Realize who you belong to. That'd be my final word of encouragement. And I want us to stand. I want to read over us right now. And then we'll sing. Just the passage out of the book of Revelation. And I just want you to listen to it. I'm not even going to make any comments on it. I'm just going to read it over you. And I want you to listen to it. Because I want you to get in your mind this image, this picture. This is a future depiction of an innumerable host of people around the throne of God in which Jesus is the center of all of this. And these are people, just like you and I. These are your people that have faced Darkness, deconstruction, and questions, and rearranging of theological furniture. And they've come out the other end. John wrote, and I looked and I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, group, language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And then one of the elders asked me, saying, Who are these? And I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, he will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
I want to invite you into a practice of um, just lifting up your voice and singing. And part of that practice would be you lifting up your hands. If I was your PT, your personal trainer, and you were to come to me, I'm not, I don't do this, but, and I would show you the right form, say, for example, I don't know, I'm doing a push-up or whatever, I don't know. I, I, would, I would walk you through the practice of doing it right. Again, I'm not certified or anything, but you get the idea. In the same way, we oftentimes think about, well, coming to church, you know, should we even be suggested? I, I would suggest to you, that's part of our, our problem is that we don't engage in certain practices of faith. We come with zero expectancy of God doing anything. And I think, honestly, oftentimes we end up getting exactly what we come expecting. There's nothing. What if we were to come with big expectancy? That our God is here. This is Narnia. You walked into that door. You thought it was his doors. It's a wardrobe. This is sacred ground. Not because of anything that this brick and mortar has to offer, but because you, brothers and sisters, who are part of this innumerable host of people around the throne of God are here. Your story is their story, is Jesus' story. Darkness is part of the landscape, but light always comes after the darkness. Resurrection always comes after death. Your dark night is not the end. It's very likely the very beginning. So Jesus, we come. I invite you right now, lift up your hands. Come to God with a posture that just says, I'm here, Lord, and I want you. Some of you might say, I don't have a whole lot of faith. Then pray the prayer in the New Testament that the one prayed before Jesus, Lord, I have no faith, but help my unbelief. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. Help my unbelief. Your unbelief is not what leads to failed spiritual progress. It's your complacency. Jesus invites us to trust him, to love him, to step out, to take a leap towards faith, saying, God, I want you. So let's lift up our voices as an act of faith, saying, God, I want you. So no matter where you're at, what types of circumstances you're going through, no matter what type of need you have, whether it be physical, emotional, healing, traumatic, pain that you've gone through. God is here. We want to pray for you. If you're here at all and you need prayer for anything that's going on, we have people that are going to be off over towards the side or the front on this little ramp thing. Love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. But let's just lift up our voice in this final song of praise to God.